now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union labels. That's to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, a perfidious pundit temporarily entrusted with command here at the headquarters of Militant Moderation while Alan is away from the desk. And here I sit looking at two major milestones or signposts in civilizational decline that are confronting us. And both of these things are probably beyond the power of any individual person to deal with at this point. It's going to happen and nobody can stop either of these things that's happening, but we need to pay attention to this stuff and be aware of it and be ready for what, what comes next. The alpha of this week's decline of American civilization would be the Jordan Neely case in uh, in New York. It actually happened last week. He was the subway guy, this random maniac on a subway that was busy screaming threats and, and had a history of violence. He, he broke an old woman's face at one point. I mean, just a, a generally dangerous character. And he's on the subway screaming threats and saying he's going to kill everybody. And then a Marine, uh, off-duty Marine or, or former Marine, decides to intervene, a young guy, not a cop, not an officer of the law, puts him in a chokehold, takes him down, and he winds up dying as a result of being in the chokehold. And the media is attempting to frame this in the most amazing way as it as his death has become a left-wing cause celeb. Now, a stronger civilization, one that isn't as degenerate and weak as ours, one that hasn't been bombarded by progressivism for as long as ours, would look at this as a tragedy, would say it's too bad this guy died, and maybe we would say, why wasn't he helped a little bit sooner? Why wasn't more done to assist him? Why was this obviously troubled man free to go on subway and cause all kinds of problems. But we're not that civilization anymore. So now our media is busy turning him into some kind of a sainted figure. There is actually media reports out there that describe him as a beloved subway performer as though he was some kind of, of, of lovable joke-a-minute entertainer, a totally harmless guy. They're, they're running footage, a video clip somebody found from years ago, where he's dancing like Michael Jackson. He's doing the moonwalk. And, and that's supposed to be your impression of him, that he's this lovable, freewheeling soul, beloved by all, who was just moonwalking, you know, on the subway one day. And this guy just jumps up and kills him, you know, for no reason. It, it's just astounding to watch this this sad story being recast for the purposes of the left, for the purposes of progressivism, and to make it so that I think that the paramount objective here is that the people in blue cities that are trapped in these Democrat-run cities that are falling apart are not supposed to think about how bad their cities have become. You're supposed to just accept that you can't ride the subway anymore, that it's not safe, that you have to just put up with this stuff. And it's even worse in some other places like San Francisco, as, a, as an example, that has descended into barbarism. Portland, Oregon is not really an American city anymore. It's like Mad Max Thunderdome out there. And you're not supposed to complain about this. You're supposed to accept this 
as a natural consequence of being progressive society. You're, we're all enlightened now. We don't punish criminals. We don't put people away. It's your fault that they do bad things anyway. If there's a guy on the subway and he's homeless and he's crazy and he's screaming death threats at everybody, uh, then it's your fault. You know, it's, it's your fault for not doing enough for this guy. And society is systemically racist and whatever else. So it's not their fault. It's your fault. And above all, you're not supposed to hold the Democrat politicians that run these cities and have done so for decades responsible for any of the things that are happening to you. So here you have this turning into a litmus test uh, as the alpha of civilizational decline and the omega, and that's the end, that's the scary one, the omega is, is the doomsday, would be this titanic rush on the American border that is shaping up. This will be like nothing I think America has ever seen before, maybe nothing the world has ever seen before. It looks down there, not coincidentally, like regimented legions of an invading army poised and ready to sweep in as soon as they can get across the border. They're waiting for May 11th. That's going to be go day uh, when they're going to come streaming across the border, when some old protections expire and will not be renewed. And they feel like their chances of just physically getting across the border and being able to stay in America forever reach roughly 100%. And that's that's when the gun goes off. And right now you've got aerial footage that shows these armored columns just marching up or an armored, but infantry columns of these, these migrants just lining up and getting ready to come sweeping across the border. And of course, the Biden administration is not going to do a damn thing to stop them. They want this. They've, they've or orchestrated this. They've organized it. This is Joe Biden's knockout punch to the American middle class. This is the blow you're not going to get back up from. He's been beating the crap out of you ever since he got into the White House, if you're in the American middle class. Punch after punch after punch rained on you from the Biden administration. Inflation, soaring fuel prices, everything he's done to you, rising interest rates, robbing you to pay off student loans to, to cadge votes. Everything he does is designed to weaken and destroy the middle class. Everything the Democrats have been doing to your kids in school with all this indoctrination they've been subjecting them to, is designed to eradicate the American middle class as we have known it. This is the death blow. This is what you don't come back from when hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens just sweep across the border and fan out to countries, cities across the country. They're not all going to stay in the border towns. A lot of them will, and the border towns aren't ready for it, and nobody cares, but they're going to wind up in other places too, and this you don't ever come back from. This is the permanent end of the American middle class as a political force. It's the end of the rule of law. This is an action by the Biden administration administration that says the ruling elite of your country doesn't give a damn what you think about border security or citizenship or safety or the job market or wages. They don't care at all. They have decided to do this to you and you will sit there and you will take it. And they're not interested in your feedback or your complaints. And this is a raw exercise of power. And if you think you're going to get back at them at the ballot box, you got another thing coming. So you might be able to express your anger at the ballot box in 2024, maybe, depending on how things go and what other issues occur between now and then that may diffuse public anger over this orchestrated border invasion. But that's probably pretty much the last election where you're going to have much to say about it. The voting power and the economic independence of the middle class are both under attack here. It's, that's the alpha and the omega, the two ends of the operation to destroy the American middle class. What defines being middle class. It's not just that you have a house or a car or something like that. It's not simply the physical trappings of middle classness. And you'll notice the Democrats work very hard to try to preserve that, or at least the illusion of it, or to reassure you that, oh, you're still going to have, uh, you know, all the middle class trappings. Although uh, uh, your friends in the Democratic Party are slowly beginning to inform you that you probably will not have a car. 
see, those are going to go away. They're making cars go away through this forced transition to electric vehicles. You will not have an electric vehicle and you will not drive it the way that you drive your car today. That's physically impossible, economically impossible. You will not see independent vehicle ownership on anything like the scale that the American middle class possesses today. But otherwise, uh, they're telling you you're still going to be pretty much the same life as you used to. They're going to make sure the accoutrements of, of middle class life remain available to you at greatly inflated prices and you'll have less disposable income, but your life will still more or less be suburban in character if that's where you live. But that isn't what defines the middle class. The middle class is defined by two significant things. Number one, it's big. So it has a lot of voting power. There are a lot of people in what could be broadly defined as the middle class, and it's defined by its economic independence. Middle class people are not on welfare. They don't need government assistance to get through their day. They may get various subsidies, but they don't think of themselves as welfare recipients in, in the sense that they're out there getting food stamps or direct government assistance programs. They feel as if they're economically independent, which means they care about economic power. They care about capitalism. They care about the job market. They care about interest rates. They care about inflation. All of those things are significant elements of the middle class experience. And the left wing, socialists, left wingers, communists, fascists, all of them, every variety, every stripe of left wingery, every, every form of progressivism, they loathe the middle class. That's their enemy. They hate you. They don't like your attitude. They don't like your lifestyle. They don't like your religion. They don't like the way you raise your kids. And most of all, they don't like the way that you can say no to them. You can refuse them. You're independent. If they do things that you don't like, if they try to seize power and impose progressive dogma on you, well, the middle class is numerous enough to effectively fight back. There's lots of them. They're not a tiny little group of rich people that can get beaten up all day and all night because there just aren't that many of them. Middle class is huge. And the bigger the middle class is, the more leftism and socialism wane. So for decades, they've been chipping away at the middle class, separating the lower end of the middle class. That is a big part of what left-wingers do. They attack the middle class from the bottom all the time, and they try to convince people in what you might call the lower middle class, the working poor, people that are climbing the ladder, that are trying to make a better life for themselves, that are working hard. They tell those people, this is futile. You're being taken advantage of. You're never going to get into the middle class. You're never going to be any better. Here are these direct attacks on the main body of the middle class. Your economic independence, your quality of life, as seen through the Jordan Neely incident, the subway, the level of crime and disruption you're being expected to put up with in lawlessness. And now here comes the illegals and there goes your job market and wages. This is a deliberate attempt to subdue the middle class. And you kind of missed your last chance to fight back against it in the last election. So now you're just going to have to do everything you can. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. We'll be right back with more of the Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Engelheim. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. 
There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Fibronir Program. To learn more about Fibronir and eligibility requirements, visit fibronir-ipf.longboat.com and fibronir-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon-St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart and don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans' organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. 
I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Poland is a fascinating topic in foreign policy these days. Most Americans think of Poland as a good friend, a friendly country in Europe, but they don't realize how strategically and economically important Poland has become. A little fun fact to come out of the UK Telegraph a couple days ago is that by the end of this decade, Poland will be wealthier than the United Kingdom and Great Britain. So that's how quickly the Polish economy is growing. And of course, we all know that they're on the front lines against the potential aggressive expansion of Russia, which is a heavy duty for Poland to bear. Here with us to talk about it is Adrian Kubicki, Council General for the Republic of Poland in New York. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this kind introduction. Uh, now we, I feel like we have to keep up with this, uh, with this prognosis it is it is an interesting story and an amazingly swift one how quickly Poland has grown in economic influence and importance strategically in Eastern Europe and in military power. The Polish military is very well equipped, very well trained, and not something that the Russians would want to mess with if they feel like being more expansionist after Ukraine. Uh, I agree with you completely. I think that well, Poland has been going through the transformation that took us over 30 years after we finally released ourselves uh, from the communists, uh, from, in a sense, also a Russian occupation, if you will call it that way. Um, and we use it properly. We joined NATO, we joined European Union. Uh, our economy is boosting, as you said. I think that this is the epicenter of the economic growth uh, for the future of Europe. Uh, any comparisons are obviously, uh, might not turn out to be accurate, but uh, one thing is, uh, actually, um, uh, very true that Poland is the only European country that has the uh, GDP growth con- consecutive for uh, over 30 years already. Uh, so it means something. And now, uh, given our geopolitical location, um, usually geography worked for Poland in a terrible way. For Poland, were invaded uh, many times. Also, speaking of Russia, of the past. 300 years, Poland spent over 250 years in Russian um, uh, occupation, under Russian occupation and the slavery of Russia in different forms and, and under a different name tax. But finally, it seems that uh, since this uh, global security uh, at the, the, the center of gravity has shifted towards our region, we have a historic chance actually to use it as an opportunity. And um, I, I also agree with you that uh, very slowly uh, also our American allies, American friends, come to realization that uh, Poland becomes a major ally for the United States of America in Europe, um, to some extent a contact point, and obviously given the situation in Ukraine, um, the major country in terms of um, combating that um, issue fighting with Russia, helping Ukrainians, and also creating this hub to provide Ukrainians with everything they need. What is the secret to Poland's rapid economic success, if you don't mind giving it away? And are there lessons there that other European nations could follow? Well, I think, first of all, uh, the, the Polish people and the Polish nation is starving for success. We were observing uh, and had a lot of sentiment towards the Western Europe, uh, when Polish people were, de- were depraved, uh, uh, access to free market, free free media, uh, developing the, the country, 
Um, and since we uh, created and, and uh, developed the movement of, of solidarity and finally our, our society, Polish people, Polish nation, was able to finally break the, the communists and bring the freedom to our country, this was something that the, the free market, uh, uh, the entrepreneurship uh, uh, innovations were, were something, that, something that, that we cherished and we wanted to uh, be the leaders of. And obviously the, the transformation is a very painful uh, process. After communist time, uh, the, the economy was in a deep recession. Um, uh, obviously that required a lot of painful uh, reforms. Uh, but after a while, uh, thanks to, to the, the, the consequently taken smart moves forward, uh, given the somewhat uh, old school, old style, um, and maybe not that energetic uh, situations, economic situations in, in other Western countries of Europe, uh, Poland becomes, becomes a shining example of uh, where this energy really is. Uh, we are the brain powerhouse for Europe, uh, other, we provide other resources, but I think mostly the most important part is that uh, energy coming from still relatively young society, very innovative, uh, just striving for success. And I think it's pretty much it. It sounds like that determination is a big part of the Polish character that made this possible, that some other countries after the fall of the Soviet Union didn't have that determination to make difficult reforms, to pay a price, to undergo some short-term setbacks for long-term gains, and they too easily fell prey to corruption. But in Poland, you can look around at your own recent history and talk to people that are alive that witnessed it, and you know just how close you are to losing freedom if you aren't ready to make sacrifices to keep I it. Think Honestly, I think that the key word you, you've used is corruption and battling corruption. This was the, the biggest battle that, that we, uh, we, we took for, for this passing 30 years. Some of, of, of the, our neighboring countries that we try even to help right now uh, were not that persistent or, or, or on fighting any forms of corruption because this is really the cancer um, um, that is taking over uh, some of the nations that could potentially be as successful as Polish and, and, and uh, uh, others. Um, so so the, the entire law system regulations that are helping to, uh, uh, to, to uh, well, make people obey some of the regulations, not taking the advantage of the situation is also part of the success story. But one, thing, one more thing that I would like to say, is that our region of Europe, and Poland is a leading country also because of its size and the size of the economy, obviously, where we are the largest country of, of the region. Um, uh, I, I think we gained very recently our identity. We understand uh, what is our difference, uh, what, what different us from, from the other countries of, of Western Europe. Uh, and only recently we learned that the, the energy we have there uh, is something is, is this asset that we can really use as, as our advantage. Uh, we struggled. There are many little countries uh, and very much split. That also market and, and economy is very fragmented still. Uh, but we are working on consolidation. And uh, I just wanted to emphasize that our collaboration between the countries of Eastern Europe are excellent. Uh, we form... Uh, uh, many bodies and many organizations that help us to keep up work together. We try to build a common uh, front 
within the alliances that we are in, uh, proudly in, like European Union or NATO. Um, and I think this also makes a lot of sense because we are in the same geopolitical situation right now. Uh, we have a lot in common, and I think I would, this is the, the, the good strategy to have our voice being listened to. Uh, the example, President Biden visited Warsaw not that long ago, a couple of months ago. He met with so-called B9, Bucharest 9, so with the countries of, of the European countries of the eastern flank of NATO. That's a very important alliance to share up. And of course, the war in Ukraine is a major challenge to the NATO alliance, to the future of other countries in the region, and a major concern for Poland. I think we can all join together in hoping that that conflict may end soon, and hopefully with some sort of resolution that makes that area of the world safer and more secure than ever. Adrian Kubicki, Council General for the Republic of Poland in New York, thank you for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Spring is here, and there's no better time to try something new. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar and enjoy real Coke taste and zero sugar. Now available at participating Burger King restaurants. Try Coke Zero Sugar with your favorite food from Burger King. Satisfy your hunger and enjoy Coke Zero Sugar with a piping hot breakfast sandwich, like a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant sandwich. Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant makes for a delicious breakfast to start your morning right. And don't forget the crispy hash browns. Or if the flame-grilled Whopper sandwich, BK Royal crispy chicken sandwich, or chicken fries are your fave, you are in luck. All Burger King menu items pair perfectly with an ice-cold Coke Zero Sugar. It's the perfect no-sugar sparkling beverage that goes great with everything. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar to enjoy spring your way at Burger King, where you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Climb puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! 
What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Glowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. Robert Kennedy Jr. is running for the Democratic nomination in 2024 against the incumbent President Joe Biden. And last week, ABC News had him on for an interview, and they had a pretty good chat. And at the end of this interview, ABC throws up a note that says they cut out the parts where Robert Kennedy Jr. spoke at length about his criticism of vaccines. They just decided you didn't need to see any of that as viewers. And this has not sat well with many of the people watching the interview. It's clearly an act of censorship, maybe not government censorship, but it's a media organization deciding that you just didn't need to hear some of the things that someone said. And while this does happen all the time in interviews, they're always edited for content to some degree. This one seems particularly aggressive and blatant. They even made a point of telling the audience that they had done it. Here with us to talk about it is Tony Lyons, president and publisher at Skyhorse and an attorney. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Yeah, thanks so much. So this really doesn't seem fair. You bring this candidate on. This vaccine issue is very important to him. It's a major part of his platform, of his identity as a candidate. And then they just decide not to show the audience that, sending the message that even to hear him talk about it would be some kind of toxic mind virus that nobody needs to be exposed to. And I wonder if this kind of thing is just reaching critical mass now. People are aware of how much editing is going on, and they don't like it. Yeah, I mean... You know, television has gotten to be advertising. 
And so much of that advertising comes from big pharmaceutical companies and from other companies that benefit from what's carried on the news. So when they get somebody on like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who just wants to tell the truth about the research that he's done and his view of what the science says, they don't want to hear it because they don't care about science. They just care about backing up the people who are advertising with them. Well, and it seems like a lot of effort being put into protecting a certain narrative that, that must not be challenged. And that's the message being sent. You don't even get to talk about these things at any great length, right or wrong. You're just not allowed to even weigh in on it. Now, your company has published some of RFK Jr.'s books in the past, so you must be familiar with some of his perspectives and positions. And you gave him a chance to speak through his books. But at the end of the day, a lot more people are going to watch these big media interviews. And this is your chance to connect with a big audience, make your pitch to be a presidential candidate candidate, and the media is just going to not carry what you say? That that doesn't sound right. Yeah, I mean, censorship of a presidential candidate certainly seems unconstitutional to me, you know, even if it's from a private company, because, you know, that is sort of uh, regulated by the FEC, and you can't favor one candidate over another candidate. You can't censor their views based on your advertisers or or based on your own point of view. So what they did was they kind of had him on. They took out many of the things that they disagreed with. They left in some things that they disagreed with, but then they bookended it with disclaimers saying that it was all misinformation. So the idea of what misinformation is in a democracy is is, you know, more complicated than that. It's not up to ABC News to decide that. So he should get to make his best argument. And if they disagree, you know, they should make their best. And if they have somebody better, if they have somebody from the CDC who they think is going to make a stronger argument, bring him on. But to just cut him down and to try to silence him, that is against everything that it means to have a democracy in this country. So when, you know, you know we published his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, it was censored everywhere. Even in places like the New York Times, you could not run an advertisement for it. So any big pharmaceutical company could run advertisements for any one of their products. But if you criticize any of those products, you can't get into the newspaper. You can't run an advertisement. Your book can't be on their bestseller list. You know, everything is, is just stifled and shut down. I hear more and more famous people, people who are politicians or candidates or even celebrities and pundits of various sorts. They're saying that when you do an interview with The New York Times, with ABC News, with NBC, whoever, any big media operation, you better record it yourself and you better have that full video ready to roll because they're going to edit you in various ways. And maybe they're not going to admit that they did it. And it might be done very viciously to make you look really bad. And you need to have the full interview on your own pocket. They're ready to pull it out and show to the public and show them what the media he didn't want them to see. That's exactly right. I mean, even when I give a blurb to the New York Times, you know, or, or a comment on, on anything having to do with one of our titles or, or on censorship, I always make it so short that it can't just be cut down into some misleading formation of what I've said. 
And vaccine criticism in particular is one of these issues where, as you pointed out, there are financial interests involved here. There's political interests involved in the vaccine. That's the whole point of, of a politicized pandemic. There are ideological questions, uh, questions of philosophy, of who we are as a people, of who says what goes and, and who must obey. All of these are lingering hangovers from the pandemic. And it seems like we're still not allowed to have a frank discussion of these topics. This can still only be conducted if some views are simply kept out of the public square, they tell us. Yeah. And, you know, my view of it is that we need as much dialogue and debate in this country as possible, that what happened during the pandemic was, you know, a, a crime against humanity in all kinds of ways. And one of those ways was the incredible censorship. So we don't need a government that just tells us what to do. So when a book like The Real Anthony Fauci comes out and people want to read it and it criticizes the U.S. government and says that U.S. government officials are corrupt and are colluding with big pharmaceutical companies to extract more money from the public, you know, that's a serious allegation and it needs to be treated like that. And we need newspapers and we need TV shows that will investigate that, not try to shut it down. And the people who defend what you're criticizing, and there certainly are some out there, they say that in a dangerous emergency, when things are happening fast, it's a pandemic, it's dangerous, the public is terrified that it's very important for the government to take charge in an emergency. And part of that is cracking down on disinformation, which means silencing data that would only confuse or frighten the public further because they're trying to save lives. And that, that does not sit well as an excuse with people critical of what happened in the pandemic, either in principle or in what they actually did. But that is the counter argument that in order to prevent a public panic and improve public health and response to a disaster like the pandemic, that somebody needs to be in charge and managing disinformation. Yeah, and I totally get that perspective, but I disagree with it so strongly because I don't trust the government to make those decisions on my behalf. So I don't want the government to protect me in, in time of crisis by just protecting itself. So I think that's what they're really doing, that they come up with a narrative that benefits them or that benefits partners of, you know, corporations that they're dealing with or, you know, any of a whole number of possible reasons. And then they just protect themselves. So I don't think that they're really trying to protect the general public. And, you know, that's the dangerous thing. And that's where you, you know, cross the line into fascism and you get a system where there's always some crisis, you know, where there's a constant war on something, whether it's the war on a virus or the war on drugs or wars all around the world. And I think that we need to stop all of those wars and we need to get to a point where we can actually have a functioning democracy where our government actually is concerned with the welfare of the people in this country. When you've touched on something important there, because this approach is by no means limited to public health or vaccines or uh, future pandemics, more and more we're being told there are many issues where the science is settled, the consensus has been arrived at, everything that disagrees with it is disinformation that needs to be silenced. That approach is contagious and it's arguably getting much worse after the pandemic, especially because it was done in the pandemic, that the trial run has been made, those powers have been tested, and now we're being told a growing list of things, of subjects, are disinformation we're not allowed to talk about. Sure. I mean, science, you know, for example, is never settled. And any serious scientist will tell you that all the settled science from 20 years ago has been proven wrong, that, you know, we're, we're supposed to ride on the shoulders of the scientists of the past, but keep moving forward. 
And so this whole idea of censoring misinformation really is, is just protecting people's narratives and then sort of ending science. So it's the end of science in the sense that you're no longer allowed to disagree. Even if you're a serious scientist, even if you're a Nobel Prize winner, you can't disagree with the U.S. government version of what something means. And if you do, you're vilified for it, you're censored, you're deplatformed. So that really has to stop. And, and one of the things that I love about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is that he wants to stop that. He believes in freedom of speech. He believes in American values in in constitutional values and in democracy. And we need a president who believes in those things. And the presidents that we've had recently simply don't. They do want to just shut down anybody who disagrees and they support uh, the capturing of government agencies by the companies that they're supposed to be regulating. And uh, Robert Kennedy is off to a surprisingly good start as a candidate. He's running about 20% against an incumbent president of his own party. That That's pretty good. Do, do you see enough interest as a publisher to, to propel him forward as the public behind him and interested in these issues enough to give him legs in this presidential campaign? Well, the amazing thing is that, you know, the, the most censored writer and thinker and speaker in America is running for president and the censorship and the propaganda hasn't worked. So the, the idea that he could get 21% of, you know, like voters. Going to have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us, uh, Tony. I'm John Hayward. We'll be right back with more of in the December, Alan Nathan Show. LastPass, a popular app for managing passwords, suffered a security breach, potentially exposing millions of people's personal information. When a business created to protect passwords gets hacked, it's a reminder how vulnerable our sensitive information can be when stored in the cloud. And for businesses who need to protect data, security is a top concern. To help prevent security risks, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud recently introduced a password manager, JumpCloud's Antoine Jabara. Businesses cannot always rely on an offline solution as users need to share and access passwords across multiple devices. And cloud-based options aren't ideal either. JumpCloud Password Manager takes a hybrid approach, storing data on users' devices and seamlessly syncs user vaults to multiple devices in an end-to-end -end encrypted way. This addresses some of the limitations of cloud-based systems and bridges the gap between convenience and security. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? 
Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got, got his first, first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. Our vets need you. I'm a quadriplegic. I'm definitely at risk with my diminished lung capacity. I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't leave the house because I have a compromised immune system. I'm very concerned about would there be a bed for me? Would there be a ventilator for me? Would I be able to survive something? It's, it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's a heavy... It's a heavy moment. This is a war. This really is. Our veterans fought for us. Let's fight for them. I am so grateful for the PVA. They're making sure that we have all of the food and supplies that we need right now. We all got to help each other right now. We can't get through this by ourselves. It's with profound gratitude that you're going to be saving our lives. To find out how you can help, please go to helppva.org. That's H-E-L-P-P-V-A dot org. the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor with Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, before we took the break, we were talking with Tony Lyons about RFK Jr., the Democratic Party nominee candidate, being silenced effectively by ABC News. They didn't want him to talk about his criticism of vaccines, so they just didn't show those parts of the interview to the public. That is one of many places in which we are increasingly told that some things are just settled and you don't get to talk about them anymore. And really, if you want to look back to where this mindset really began, I mean, the the thing, the issue upon which the elite simply decided that we were no longer really allowed to even talk about it, never mind have anything to do with it, I would pick immigration as a pretty good example. I think that a strong case could be made that that was the beginning of this whole concept of elite consensus and censorship and everything that doesn't agree with the 
consensus will be silenced and denounced and, and shut down. That was a trial run for the rest of it. And there's going to be a lot more of it. Now, you already know there are topics where we're being told the discussion is over, uh, the debate is over, sometimes in exactly those words. And global warming, climate change jump out as the big one. We're told that you're no longer allowed to argue with it, even though the, the science of climate change is falling apart. I mean, they've had a couple of really bad years over at the Church of Global Warming. All of their doomsday predictions have failed to materialize. We keep getting conflicting data that the temperature is not increasing the way that they said it was going to, and nobody can come up with any scientific basis for saying that human activity or carbon dioxide emissions or anything like that is the control knob that changes the global climate. It's, it's been really rough on them, but you wouldn't know that uh, to listen to the media. If you look at the way this issue is covered, uh, they just tell you it's over. You know, global warming guys won, and you're not allowed to argue with them anymore, and we're going to take your car away, and we're going to redo the economy, and you're going to have to deal with solar panels, and maybe you're not going to have lights at night anymore, because that's it. The, the global warming debate is over, and any sacrifice we force you to make is, is going to happen, and you don't get to talk about it anymore. That's kind of how you force people to accept uh, a consensus, you basically a manufactured consensus. You tell them they're not allowed to argue with it anymore, that there is no good faith argument against it. And that's really the key tactic. That's that's how you do this. And you're seeing some of this in the debate over vaccines. That's a very contentious debate. Not everybody agrees with what RFK Jr. has to say about it, obviously. Not everybody agrees with any other critic of the vaccines. There's lots of, of back and forth here. But the important thing is that the technique is that we're told it's disinformation if you challenge the official line on vaccines, vaccinations, the COVID vaccine. And uh, if you don't agree, if you if you talk about things they don't want you to talk about, that's disinformation. You have to be silenced. And that implies that you're not arguing in good faith. If you were arguing in good faith, you wouldn't be a disinforming liar. You, you, disinformation is what the Russians do. That's a that's how you topple a civilization or you spread disinformation. So so you're like a saboteur. You're kind of seditious almost if you're a spreader of disinformation. You can't have any good reason for disagreeing. And that tactic is right back to the beginning of the information uh, the immigration debate. Whenever you want to say the modern crisis really began, I think you could most firmly trace it to immigration reforms in the 80s. Uh, reform were made that kind of threw the borders open that allowed a lot more immigrants to come in legally and also weakened protections against illegal immigration. And we were told that in exchange for that, we were going to get stronger border protections and we were going to get more aggressive uh, techniques to weed legals out of society. So we'd have more legal immigration, more of the, of the good stuff. And the deal was that then they would crack down on the bad stuff. And as we all know by now, they didn't even momentarily cracked down on the bad stuff. It was a complete betrayal, and we had illegal immigration in huge numbers getting worse and surging, usually under Democratic presidents and when certain things would happen in Central and South America that would provoke big migrant waves headed for the U.S. border. We never got the border security we were promised. It was always kind of a scam. They took every concession we made to make it easier for illegals to get legalized and stay in the country. Everything we've ever given the open borders lobby, they've gobbled up instantly, but they never hold up their end of the bargain. We never get anything back. There's never any compromise reached. It's just take and take and take. And part of the way that they do that is to say that there is no legitimate opposition to open borders immigration. In other words, if you don't like it, you're a racist. You're a xenophobe. You're, a, you're heartless. You're cruel. How could you possibly? These are hardworking people that are just looking for a better life. And you say, well, what about crime? 
we have all kinds of crime as a result of, of the tidal wave of illegals coming into the country and a few high profile recent incidents. And there always are. I mean, there are today, but pick any moment in time. And there have been high profile recent incidents of legal aliens committing very serious crimes, some of which even make it to the headline news. And you're told, well, that's not legitimate argument because uh, aliens are more law abiding on average than citizens or something like that. Like, you know, you, you're not allowed to complain about who's coming across the border until the domestic population of the U.S. cleans up its act and our crime rate goes down, and then then maybe we'll talk. And that's just another way of delegitimizing people, of saying you can't possibly have a legitimate concern. You're not worried about anything that's for real. Another argument we heard was that migration, you know, both legal immigration in vast numbers and illegal immigration, you could combine those and talk about migration. We were told that migration was vitally important because Americans didn't want to do the jobs. Remember, we heard that one all through the 90s. The jobs Americans just won't do. We're going to import people to do those jobs because you guys don't want to do them. And that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more migrant labor you bring in to work in certain sectors and certain industries, it drives the wages down, which is why this coming tidal wave, and you have never seen anything like what's going to happen in two days when Title 42 expires. That's the, the program that was holding the migrant tide at bay. It, look at the pictures right now. Look at the aerial photographs over the border crossing points in Arizona. It looks like uh, the the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings movies. They are ready to go like nothing you've ever seen before. Buses, trains on foot, they're going to come over every way they can in titanic numbers. It's going to be civilization changing for us what happens here. But you're not allowed to object to it. There are no legitimate arguments against it because the other side has been telling us for years that no one of good faith can possibly oppose open borders or illegal immigration or massive legal immigration, even when we do have a clear interest. Clearly, it changes the wage base. That's indisputable. There are entire industries that now revolve around low-cost migrant labor that wouldn't be that way without massive immigration in order to fuel those industries. It distorts the wages for everyone when you bring in people like that, especially at the lower end. If you're entry level, if you're hardworking, trying to climb that ladder up into the middle class, if you're a kid just getting started in life, young person, that that's the kind of wage that tends to be most distorted by titanic levels of migration. That's It's the bottom that really gets tugged hard by those forces. But you're told all along that you have no legitimate complaints against any of this, and you have to be a monster and a racist and selfish if you have any problem with it. And now look at where we are. We're, we're poised at this calamity, and it is an absolute calamity. It's already one. I mean, the, the border is already a massive crisis under Joe Biden, like nothing we've seen before. And in two days, it's going to get worse than you could ever imagine. And it's going to be a humanitarian disaster on top of what it means for the people of the United States, for our economy, for crime and wages. There is going to be a humanitarian disaster, like, you know, third world level from what's going to happen here. And everybody knows it. So we never should have let them tell us that our concerns were illegitimate. Don't be bullied that way. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. Thanks for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.